Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the 157th edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And the reason why I stress Frank and Stan is that when you uh, uh, follow this up and you get sort of uh, the sort of words printed along the bottom of your screen, it comes up as Frankenstein. So it's, uh, but it's not Frankenstein, it's Frank and Stan chat. And, and those of you watching on video will notice that uh, we have a guest, Jill Lanson. Hello, Jill. Hi, nice to nice to see you. Yeah, thank you for joining us, and we'll we'll come to Jill in a minute, but uh, we'll go to Stan. Stan, you've got about half an hour or so before you head to North Wales. I have, yeah. <laughs> the sun's out. It's warm day. Yeah, and, and coming back almost immediately. <laughs> I'm not there for very long. Oh dear. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, the weather's a bit thunderstorms at some point. Yeah, today, today looks okay though you might be right today yeah but it'll be good to get there it will yeah breathe yeah. out a bit a deep sigh yeah. mm-hmm. uh jill well thanks for joining us um do you want to just introduce yourself and let everybody know who you are and what you do yeah absolutely um, i'm dr jill ianson um, and i'm a consultant clinical psychologist and um, with change of minds uk and um, i work in the uh, CAFS team which is the child and family service so my work is, um, historically, I've worked in uh, CAMS, in child and adolescent mental health, in paediatrics, and as, a, as an expert witness too. Um, and then now my role here is largely actually supporting other organisations to bring a psychological perspective. So although I do some direct work um, with young people and families, mostly what I do now is I work with other professionals to enhance their psychological knowledge and confidence and thinking around around their work. Which How did you get into this it. then? How did you get into this? Into this work? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't a good enough dancer, Frank. Um, <laughs> Frank. Um, sorry. Well, there's a... <laughs> Well, surely, surely I should have been in there then as well. <laughs> I wanted to do. So you really um, wanted to be a dancer, but then something... Did I did did I, yeah? I put classical, on a dance classical ball. ballet stuff or contemporary or what? What was that? Uh, yeah, sort of more. Yeah, I did all sorts, but more modern. I was never going to be a, a you know a classical yeah, ballet. Yeah. So more more modern stuff, but no, I think I just like throwing shapes on a dance floor. That's the limit. I, <laughs> I discovered of my talents. Um, but um, how did I get into it? I think so. My mum was a clinical psychologist and a psychotherapist, um, so I suppose I was sort of brought up around thinking about um things in in quite a philosophical and psychological way um and so it sparked my interest i, I think i've always been really interested in in the human condition right, <laughs> and, right. and people and and philosophy i suppose i ended up at university i did psychology but i did politics and philosophy along with it and oh, i think right. that was really i suppose i'm interested in in that's why I'm, I've then been drawn to a more systemic perspective is that, you know, humans in groups and how systems work right. and, and all those dynamics, whether it be a family or whether it be a whole culture and everything in between. Um, so I, I then do leadership work within our, within our service. So um, we work specifically doing training, but also supporting leaders in terms of thinking about all of this stuff too. And, right. and I, I find that really exciting because if you're having a, an impact at the top, that you know helps things to cascade down, doesn't yeah. it? So, yeah. So what, what, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you were presenting, uh, I think, recently to a group of head teachers. I mean, 
what sort of things are they raising with you? You know, as a barometer, how how are things feeling from your side? You know, in, in terms of the, the 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 leaders that you meet and and how they're feeling about life in general. Um, things that that stick out. I, th- I suppose it's slightly different in uh, different spheres. I think education wise. Um, personally, I can really see how there's a lot of societal burden. <laughs> Yes. Upon, upon education and schools. Um, we've got a lot of complex issues, haven't we, to do with um, young people and, and in society and post-COVID and, and the the impact of COVID. And that's, that's still a bit of a struggle. I can see that in my household and I can hear that talking to other people as well, and um, particularly within education. So I think I think talking to educators from, uh, sorry, yeah, leaders in education, I think, they feel a lot of that pressure of the responsibility for so many different issues in society that are complex, mm-hmm. that have got this so multifactorial, aren't they? Yes. And I think they often feel a pressure on them to, to be responsible for that and to take the lead on that. Um, and of course, whilst they're really well placed because they see those children regularly they can't do that on their you know none of us could do that on our own they're really complex factors aren't they with all sorts of things playing in from poverty to the impact of that loss of connection uh, during covid to you know employment etc etc there's so many mental health services for adults even that then has an effect doesn't it on children as well as obviously the more direct yeah, it's, it's interesting for to teachers that, that they may not know it, but they had a faulty gene that brought yeah. you into teaching. And it was a gene that made you feel responsible for everything that had gone wrong in the world. <laughs> and so when when, England, when somebody gets bowled out at cricket and the people say we're not doing enough cricket in schools, every teacher goes, yeah, we're not. <laughs> it's our <laughs> faults. Well, and I wonder how much inadvertently or, or more directly that's reinforced in society that idea of well you know you need to be doing more you need to be doing more um interesting and- i was in bradford this week um they I, 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 I you know real shout out to some of the work they've done uh, after the pandemic and after the opportunity area closed down but a number of the heads were saying we found us we find ourselves now um really concerned about the uh, issues that are happening to the family and and what we are doing in order to enable the children to give their best in school you know and they were talking about co-location that actually some of them have found themselves not uh, not with a a big bradford council plan but they found themselves meeting um you know health health workers social workers far more frequently and actually a real and a keenness to have them co-located and and actually from somebody who's uh uh inspected a number of uh did some work around sort of 10 inspectorates where we brought them all together you know from probation into social care into health the cultures within those those um services are quite different so interestingly that a number of them were pointing out the fact that they felt that they needed more sort of training and support in how to bring some of these services together co-located and the training that they have is very focused on outcomes you know academic outcomes and it's interesting this week i got sight of the key stage one national figures 
which are going to show some improvement, not massive improvement, but some improvement. And I can imagine the government saying, well, look, we've turned the corner. Things are going to get better. But actually sitting within that getting better, that there's just a very narrow focus on that. And there's the bigger issues, the more sort of long term issues that are quite difficult to measure, you know, but actually they're sitting there. And I think head teachers can feel that and they don't feel equipped to be able to cope with some of those challenges at the moment. So it's interesting, Brad, for this week. Yes, I, when we were doing children's trusts in Lancashire, my, one of my jobs, roles, projects, was to write um, a leadership framework for all the different organisations, fire, police, health. And so you look at all that, and I mean, they were all based on standards, and none of them really connected with the other. So mm. it was like, right, we'll take the lot. and we'll re- The health was actually the best one, I think, if I remember rightly. The health was the one that was closest. And eventually I did it all on behaviours. I, I took away everything and just said, right, well, the thing we can say across all these uh, services is we can look at be- the way people behave and the way they manage their own behaviour. Mm. So that, that's what it was based. But when you say the cultures were different, the the some of the leadership frameworks were just wildly different yeah. considering yeah. that we were all technically in the same role i mean you you have a podcast don't you jill about leadership i do we do it's called the evolving uh yeah. responsive yeah psychologically responsive leadership podcast and um, we talk to people from all sorts of backgrounds actually um although we largely work with people from health education and social care we've got people from all sorts of backgrounds on there from finance and um, higher education to the army to um, wine industry. <laughs> so, so that's been really interesting and um, hearing what they've got to say. And, and what you were just saying there was making me also think about what I hear in that within that podcast and talking to people, but also with educators and leaders in education is that tension between being task focused in terms of outcomes or whatever it is and being relational focused and and I I think sometimes they feel that there is now more information and when they're working with other professionals like us they're trying to shift a bit more towards having a relational focus Uh, but they're perhaps working in a system that's very task focused um and we, we were discussing this last week. Um, we did a day with leaders, educational leaders across Liverpool, and we were talking about in some of the, the conversations we had there about that tension. But that actually, sometimes when we're relationally focused, that can help us get to the task as well. It's just a little bit more of a um, a, a route off the main drag, as it were. Yeah. But I think it. There's lots of benefits to that, which you know you were alluding to when you were talking about it in terms of all the other benefits and how we can take children who are an adult and people and staff who are struggling. Yeah. <laughs> we can take them with us um, when we have more of a relational focus. But but sometimes you know from the top down, that's not that's not <clears throat> what she's on. When Frank and I were heads, there was this um, feeling that you were either an academic school who didn't care much for the children, or you were a very caring school who didn't bother about the academic progress. <clears throat> and I could never get my head around it and say, mm-hmm. no, we're both. 
we, children do enjoy coming to our school. They do laugh at times. They do have fun. But we're also getting results that are higher than most of the schools. Yeah. It's not. It's not an or. It's an and. Yeah, I think for me it was around um, at the heart of education. I think it was a really disappointing move when the coalition government um, renamed the Department for Children and Families to the Department for Education. Mm. That that then became the focus was purely on education. And what did we mean by education? I think has been highlighted this week by Keir Starmer when saying this: you know, people outside of education, you know, just simply can't understand why we talk about education and skills. You know, and actually, a good education involves skills. You know, it's not just about the knowledge; it's about that. It's about the attitudes. It's about what you're able to sort of enable children to aspire to. You know, all of this is all part of a good education. So it's sort of like it's as if what happened in 2010 um, was that actually it just became quite narrow. And I think schools like the ones you were describing there, which have been trying to hold on stand to that sense of, you know, a broader view of things, actually have been, what is it, 13 years of an onslaught of one agenda item, which they feel very uneasy with, but have had to play the game in order just to keep in the game, you know? And and that then gets played out, doesn't it? I can see within edu- it's not just education actually I think it's all organizations that work with children but I think it's really this is just my opinion from what I see and um, it's really played out in education that polarizing of a, a a behavioral approach and a more sort of you know what's called trauma trauma informed approach and that gets really split like they are um they're opposed to one another and that yes. they're that, that they're a kind of memory <clears throat> whereas actually I think that, you know, as human beings, of course, we have a threat system, but we're also behavioural beings and our, we're shaped by our environment and the response that we get. And actually, we can we can put both of these things together. We can put other information together as well about what helps us to feel motivated and engage and master things, master our skills like you're talking about. And we can put all of that information together to be to draw on the best psychological knowledge we've got rather than this polarizing of, well, we're either behavioral or we're trauma-informed. And if we're trauma-informed, we, we don't use any consequences or we don't do anything, you know. And if again, if we're yeah. behavioral, we, you know, as you said before, don't don't think about or don't care almost. And, and actually, that's just a false dichotomy, I think, really. Um, so, I mean... These these chats, Dan, aren't they? They're the best bit of in-service we get each week. Uh, actually, it sort of makes me realise then, um, I mean, this is over, just in terms of behaviour, there's s- certain people on um, social media who want to promote a very sort of one-sided view. And, and I think what you've done is is managed to convey that this is a much more sort of nuanced and integrated approach that's required. Um, right. Stan, well, fifteen minutes nicely in. I think to that. I know, yeah. What's caught your eye this week? <laughs> I just picked up on a on a tweet where someone had had um, suggested, let's say, that there was no place in schools for a teacher hugging a child. Um, uh, it was completely inappropriate, and it should never happen. And and it just left me cold when I thought of four and five year olds on, in an environment that they've never met before, uh, and an adult that they're going to make um, a friend of, 
uh, just saying, no, we can't hug. Uh, and it took me back to being ahead and saying, and I know I said this every time when we had an intake of, uh, of reception parents, that if a child in this school needs a hug from a teacher, they will get one. If if you're not happy with that, if that makes you uncomfortable, you may have chosen the wrong school. That's that's where, where we stand. And in 10 years, I never got a parent who, who said anything other than that's what we want. And you know, I was thinking about it last night, and I thought I, I can't actually remember myself as head ever hugging any of the children, but it was to to say to the staff, "You are looking after these children. You're, you're making emotional connections with them all the time, and if you reject a child who who's coming for a hug because they feel they need it, I'm sure you're doing more damage than you're doing good. I'm sure of it." Because kids, kids need, especially young children. You're talking about, you know, primary school children, aren't you? Mm. They, they're often in those situations, being being stretched and tested, and they're away from their families, especially in reception. Yeah. And they're going to need some help to regulate at times, aren't they? And that starts with when we're feeling really stressed and overwhelmed. We need to regulate our bodies first of all, don't we? Well, you know, how do we do that with our children? We we do it through safe touch, don't we? Yeah. And first and foremost, and words. So it's understandable um, that that's going to be a natural human connection is is to do that. I think people get pulled sometimes by, you know, obviously safeguarding concerns, yeah, yeah. And, and I totally understand that. It's a bit of a golden mean, isn't it? Somebody was using that phrase on our podcast recently. It's the golden meme, and it's the golden mean in everything, isn't it? <laughs> About oh, not yeah. getting too pulled one way, not getting too pulled yeah. the other, way. and sitting somewhere with the nuance, like you said before, yeah. Frank. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's acting professionally and understanding that that's actually part of your profession yeah. is is to be able to know how to behave and how to react <laughs> and how to respond to children's needs. But, you know, it's easy also to write a set of rules for staff to say you don't do that in the classroom mm -hmm. on your own. You don't do and, and again, I would expect staff acting professionally to make sure that didn't happen, to, to be sure that they were protecting themselves as much. And, as and, and, and also if it was happening too often. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and at times when perhaps it wasn't required, mm -hmm. you know, these are all indications of something slightly yeah. Or sort of beyond the normal. Um, and I think those are times when you would perhaps say something, you know. Um, but actually, I, I mean, remember having... my daughter at, at age 17 hugging the teacher at college when she yeah. got her uh, A level results. Yeah. You yeah. Know, that's... I, it, it, yeah. And, and I, I, th I think I said before, you know, the four year old running up to me as the head, you know, just grabbing my leg and hanging yeah. onto the leg, you know, I mean, I don't know how you're supposed to react to that in front of all the parents. What, run away, push them off, you know, whatever. I mean, you wouldn't do that, would you? I'm I not would, sure I kicking them do. off would go down particularly well. No, no. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, yeah, what's caught your eye this week, Jill? Um, what caught my eye was I'd seen that um, apparently five schoolgirls had written a letter to Rishi Sunak about how... Um, they felt and their arguments for why they wanted single sex toilets within their school. Um, and I guess what caught my eye here was not necessarily their argument or their point, but was that they felt able to express their opinion, to write to the top as they saw it, mm. to argue their point. Um, and I think 
I, I was really impressed with that and and for other people to then counter some of that and and have their other arguments put forward but um I suppose it's I've seen across some schools and education the higher education there's been more of a trend to kind of push down some debate sometimes and um and actually I love the phrase having a, a safe space for disagreement I really like that phrase to be able to disagree well to be able to articulate our points without getting into just you know slandering people but actually talking about the subject matter and and arguing our points is really important so I was I was just really impressed that they had had done that and and I suppose it felt hopeful <laughs> that, <laughs> that young people were finding a, a way of of countering perhaps what the trend is but also engaging positively and openly um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah I I heard an MP talking about how they actually across across the divide when they work together on on various projects, how they get on and they work together, and it's all very convenient. And you just think maybe we need to see some some of that rather than the adversarial approach. We the only bit we see is the shouting of abuse at each other across the uh, dispatch box. Yeah, or maybe some some stuff where people are sitting down and, and coming up with something, even though they may have different ideas or or different. Um, beliefs in the way things should be done to, to come together and knock something together that works yeah it, it's it's like the select committees select committees are really effective where they bring different mps from different parties together um and they generally i mean generally i think it's it's more than half of the uh committee reports they produce are actually unanimous you know so everybody from whichever party and there's one this week isn't there where the i think the Education Select Committee has suggested that um, the plans for T levels and the loss of BTECs, you know, is really, a, a, really they ought to be very careful about what the, the the route they're on because I don't think anybody said that the committee was saying there's nothing wrong with this T level idea, just that we think there aren't going to be enough businesses able to support them, and we're going to end up by stopping the BTECs and there'll be nothing to fall back to. So they were really sort of suggesting a, a more measured approach. Uh, and that that was unanimously agreed, but actually the government have rejected it. Uh, the reason why is because it's you know they're all for BTEX and they've decided that the, uh, they're all for T levels and the BTEX are going, so we can't make it look as though we made the wrong decision. You know, so it then makes you wonder, well, what's the point of having select committees then? <laughs> that, you know, if they're going to produce these reports, that every time the government's just going to ignore it, and that that's consistent. A lot of support for cross party groups being responsible for education mm. health uh so so that it wasn't this nonsense that we have at the moment where you know the our first plan is to undo whatever the last lot did and and they'll then undo what whatever yes. we yes. do and no long-term plans for anything yeah. there isn't a long-term plan no and it's also making me wonder whether there's something there in the government for example in that example where um actually being seen to do a u-turn being seen to actually we've listened and now we've changed our mind is seen as as weakness in some way rather yeah. than good leadership yeah, it's funny because michael will show we've said this before yeah, i was just going to say the same say, thing right he he changed his mind about ofsted reports having single grades he was a big fan of those um, when i worked with him and he want he was the one that said well we've got to get rid of satisfactory we've got to have good every school's got to be good 
And there was a lot of pushback on this within the organisation. And I remember being in meetings with him and with uh, senior civil servants saying, I don't know if we've got the legislation for this, but whatever. So, but he, he drove that very hard. And recently he's now U-turned and, and he, his, his line was, you know, well, actually I know a bit more. Things are not the same, you know, and actually I think it's just a level of maturity and no one's castigated him for changing his mind. There's no, you know, I mean, it just happens, doesn't it? You know, things move on. And and the problem is, like you were saying before, Stan, because you've got like an adversarial system at times that that anything that does happen with a U-turn or a change of mind just gets used across those yeah. dispatch boxes in such a, I mean, it's it's embarrassing to watch at times, isn't it? Where actually that makes it more hard. And yeah, when people do that to them, it, that's good leadership. Yeah. <laughs> like say, actually, I've learned more. I've changed my mind. I've reflected on something. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think the adversarial bit was highlighted, as you said, Stan, on question time last night, which is the most disgraceful bit of macho, ill-informed, aggressive behaviour I have seen. And I've seen, a, and I don't watch it, to be honest, very often, but last night was absolutely awful. Um, if young people are watching that and thinking, you know, this is what you have to do to be an MP, this is what the government's about, Whoa, dear me, this is a really poor place for bad manners. Just, yeah, terrible. Just, just you know, I, I can remember when I first started teaching and, and teachers would say to me, you know, well, we need to teach the children manners. And I thought this is just rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, good manners are really important yeah. and, and and help in leadership. If if you've been brought up to to respect other people's viewpoints and, and to listen and to know that you have a different viewpoint, but but you need to listen and hear, and no, that's that's mm. part of of having good manners when you're four and five yeah. listening. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing for me, a right Clough quote recently, who said, you know, well, what, how did you cope when uh, when players disagreed with your ways of playing? And he said, well, we'd 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 meet up, we'd have a twenty minute meeting. They'd say their point of view. I'd say my point of view, and at the end of it, they'd realise I was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, what's caught my eye this week is that um, I'm, I'm sort of just changing it a bit. I suppose I'm, I'm not going to sort of cover the, the thing that I thought of initially. Um, was I, I think we haven't spoken a lot um, about strikes. Strikes are on today. Um, there's a um, you know, national teacher strike going on. Um, and and that's a matter that's not been resolved for months and months and months. And it's a, you know, talk about post-pandemic recovery. You know, I mean, this is a self-inflicted wound, isn't it, on lots of children? Because in a way, there's been a, on my view, a lack of engagement. You know, between government, the employers, and the unions. Um, but also, there was uh, we still have a situation at the moment where schools cannot set their school budgets. We're two weeks away from the end of term and and every single school is uncertain about what their budget situation is like because the Secretary of State has not released the recommendation paper for um, uh, teachers' pay awards. And and actually, that means to say that no school in this country knows what the budget situation is like going forward. Whether it will be funded or... Yeah, they, they have no idea... Um, what that figure is and I know the trust I'm involved in a trust in East Manchester 
we've had to set up a series of scenarios to move forward. It's a colossal amount of work for that finance team, simply because there's something in there that's politically unacceptable. Because if it was great news, it would be out, wouldn't it? But it, but what the what the government has done every time is they've left it to virtually the day after the schools close. You know, we talk about workload and well-being. You know, this, this is a conscious decision that this government's making not to release that information, not to release that report. And it's actually just adding incredible uncertainty to a very fragile situation at the moment. So, you know, all of these things are, you know, really sort of central to how much confidence you have that the government are actually pulling for you and for the children that you serve. And I feel they fall short at the moment. And last night's question time, I have to go back to it, Stan. Um, uh, the MP, the Tory minister, did this when he was told, you know, let somebody else in. Just... You think, what is that? Childish. I, my only thing is I'm pleased that most primary school children are in bed by the time that's on. And don't and aren't really allowed to be on social media, you know, we're not supposed to be, but you know. Well, you... The advice from one of the ministers to say, you know, why can't teachers, if they want to go on strike, go on strike during the holidays? I know. <laughs> and I retweeted, they should go on strike when they're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Just wow. Oh, anyway, um, well, I mean, we, we, we've been doing this since May 2020, every week, apart from the summer holidays where we have a four-week break. And I think this government has been so successful in keeping this Frankenstein chat going <laughs> that we ought to offer a vote of thanks to the, uh, to the sort of issues that have arisen during that time from, in effect, the first lockdown to now. Um, and they just continue to, you know, to surprise us. I'm really interested in, you know, you were saying that they're not releasing that information about what you think the factors are and why they're not doing that. I think point. it's bad news and they're not funding it. They're not going to fund all of it. Right. And they think that the government, looking at the budgets, if you take if you take all the budgets in every single school, including the reserves, which I think is what they've done, they think there's enough money in the system. To, for, for the system to deliver that. But unfortunately, the cake is split up into individual slices for individual schools. And that will mean that some schools and some trusts will be able to cope with a 6.5% unfunded. But they might be able to do it for a year. They won't be able to do it forever. Mm. Um, but there are others that will go to the wall. But they, yeah. but, so their argument will be there's enough money in the system. Yeah. But they've created a funding formula that's meant that some of the schools won't have enough. And so it'll be redundancies amongst teaching assistants will be the first, and yeah. there'll be a hierarchy of of who we lose first in mm. order to to pay what we have to pay yeah. for. And, and that's in a context, isn't it, of what we were saying before, whereby yeah. schools are also expected and best placed to do all this kind of social work, really, yeah, you yeah. know, connection and. Uh, and you know, think about all those other things as well, isn't it? So, so there may be money there in in some view, but actually, we're trying to do all sorts of different things with that money that society is asking us to do. Yeah, know? and if education is education, we yeah. still got the Department of Education. Yeah. That's it's a very 
narrow sort of view of what schools are doing, and particularly those serving the most challenging communities. Yeah. yeah. It's when the government announced things like we're going to put a mental health expert in every school, which means another teacher is going to be told to go on some training <laughs> and then you will be our mental health expert. There's no money to come with that. There's no extra, extra, no. just just more work for, for mm-hmm. those who are willing to do. Yeah. Um, can we end up with something positive this week? I mean, Jill, have you? we often ask our guests, I don't know if you've thought about this, is there something you'd like to do to change sort of the lives of children and young people moving forward? Why me? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, I think, I, I think what I said before probably is if we could... I suppose it goes across everything we've talked about in lots of ways. If we could realise the power of connection and how much that um, can really shape our experience, our human experience, and it doesn't have to be a connection rather than task or or rather than, Mm. you know, performance. (laughs) It doesn't have to be. But actually good connection, when you look at all the research in terms of resilience in children, despite the fact that they've had lots of adversity, it's relationships is one of the most key factors, you know, because because it's those that connection that helps us to feel more safe, more secure, scaffold our learning, scaffold our ability to risk take, to feel good about ourselves. So I suppose I suppose uh, finding a way um, at different levels of the system for really understanding the power of connection and that you don't have to lose the other objectives whilst we're doing that, I think that that's really important. And I suppose that's a lot of what we do in our work, isn't it, when that's what we're trying to do, really. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Stand that car's ready to head off to North Wales. The engine's running. Thanks for sticking yeah. with us till the end, Stan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was more... <laughs> we've been, we've been uh, looking after our one-year-old grandson all week and overnight at weekend. So so it's, I'm more likely to fall asleep <laughs> than jump in. <and> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all being well, I think we have got one final um, uh, Frankenstein chat before we close down for the summer. And one thing also, this week we've recorded the first of the new Frankenstein spotlights with Dennis Sherwood, and I'll be posting that up next week as well. We're looking at uh, how reliable are our exam grades that are being given, um, and, and the book he's written about, is it called uh, Missing the Mark? So uh, that'll be up next week as well. So thanks, Jill. And uh, and, uh, everybody have a great week and uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye.